And I do feel that right about now, if I feel that there is injustice or inequality or any kind of discrimination, anything that really does not say that we are, we have equality in the way that we operate, then I have, I have the position. I have the position to be able to say that. But I also have the, I'm in the position to say, actually, have you not seen that? Have you not seen that? And you're all here. You know, maybe nothing has actually physically happened, but are you not sensing the way this conversation is going? Are you not sensing the way that people are being clustered and treated? You can't be doing this now. We've got to open this up. Hello, everybody, and welcome to 1000 Voices, where we're on a mission to interview 1000 Black British changemakers, showcasing the stories of individuals who are making a massive impact in their fields and their communities. Now, today, I'm very, very honored and I feel very privileged to have our amazing guest with us today, Miss Sharon Watson. To, for a little bit of a background as to who Sharon is, Sharon is the fourth principal of the Northern School of Contemporary Dance and has had a long and a very illustrious career in the world of dance, including being the longest standing artistic director of the Phoenix Dance, dance Theatre, and she's won a number of different awards to name a couple, an MBE for her services to dance and being awarded the Arts and Media Senior Leader of the Year by the Black British Business Awards. And that's just a little snippet. So without any further ado, let's dive right into this conversation. Thank you for coming to the podcast, Sharon. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And what a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure and an honour to have you on the podcast as well. So thank, thank you, you so much for coming down. Um, really, really appreciate it. So to kick things off, I always like to do things a bit chronologically. Can you take us back to the moment or the experience within your life that you feel led you to realize that you wanted to drive a change, whether in your life or in the lives of people around you? Wow, that's a massive question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Gosh, it'll take up the whole of this podcast, but I, um, I think it's, it's a very valid question in terms of where I, I sit today. Um, as a CEO and the principal of the Northern School of Contemporary Dance. So dance has always featured in my life. And from the age of nine, to be inspired by just being able to see other people experience a way of moving that said to me, I can do this and this can be part of who you are. But I think being more direct around that moment, I think there was the satisfaction of that journey for me told me I can do more for others. And I don't know if there was one significant epiphany that said this is for you this is how it's going to look but I found myself speaking quite often around the changes that needed to happen as a performer very often I think if anyone was going to say anything it would be me um, in terms of meetings I would always be the one that has a, a view or an opinion and I think that just started to come through as I guess my confidence built with my own abilities to deliver that you suddenly realize actually not only are you learning and you have knowledge, but you can impart that in a way that actually helps others. And as I've moved further through my career and enabled myself to be on different platforms, I also realized that actually I can't waste those moments to be able to share what I think is useful for more than myself. So it wasn't one moment. I think it's, it's a great question because I'm just realizing that it's, it's seeped into my activity, into my consciousness and therefore into the way in which I feel I'm delivering what I do today. Amazing. And I often, oftentimes feel that it's not necessarily one moment, it's usually a culmination of different moments that lead us to wherever we are today. Maybe there may be a one or a few very key changing moments, but it's, it's going to be a culmination of a bunch of different things. 
you mentioned that when you're young, you were usually the one to speak up if you wanted to say something. Was that something you were encouraged to do from childhood by <laughs> your family or the environment you're in? I'm one of eight in my family. I'm number seven wow. of eight. And wow. to find your voice in a very creative, articulate and vibrant family, then something had to give. And I think I, I again, reflecting back, I was very outspoken with my family and my parents. They come from, my, both my parents are from the Caribbean. There were certain traditions that I didn't agree with, certain traditions that I knew actually that wasn't about equality, even within my own family. And I was able to say that. And I think it's, it is from a very young age that you realize that actually as a human, there is a level of respect you have to give yourself. And, you know, the fear of even standing in a room at nine years old and saying, I'm not washing the dishes until my brother comes in and does it with me has come from somewhere. I can't say where, but that's kind of a little bit of I me. Mean, I think if my nine-year-old had said that to me now, I'd be like, oh, okay, yes, no, you're absolutely right. But my parents, you know, the traditions that they have, I think it was the case that that's the job that you did. Um, uh, but I just felt that actually it's all the girls doing one job and the boys doing the other. I'm not happy about that. So and my brothers, most of them were older than me, of course, uh, with being number seven, I have a younger brother. But that was it. It's me and my brothers, or not at all. <laughs> so, mm. um, it, it did begin to sink in, because I don't think it was the first or the last of that kind of conversation or that being, being outspoken or standing up for something that I felt could be different um, and valuing myself, which I guess that's what I was doing at the time. Yeah, and how did dance feature? You mentioned, I think you said you're nine years old. How did that feature in your youth? So at nine, I was just about embarking. For those of you old enough to remember when schools were middle schools, um, my sister, who's two and a half years older than me, went to the middle school. And because dance was on the curriculum, she was dancing and coming home and showing things. And there was one day when she came home and just said, we did this in the dance class today. Can you do this? I was like, oh, okay, I'll give it a go. And she showed me something else. And honestly, I think that was an epiphany moment when I just went, I can't wait to get to this school because I can do this and I feel quite good doing it. When I had my first lesson at nine years old, Nadine Senior, who was at the time the PE teacher, said, uh, you know, we had this talk about dance and why it's on the curriculum, why everybody's doing it. And I did my first dance lesson and I came home to my mum and dad and said, at 16, I'm going to London to become a professional dancer. And I just, that's going to be my career. Well, 16 came and I went. Wow. And is that something that your family and your parents supported you in doing at the time? The thing that was interesting, our parents grafted. They worked so hard. One in, one out, night shift, morning shift, you know, eight children. And we all had they never left us out so it wasn't so much that they weren't supportive of or supportive there's two of us that were dancing they just trusted an environment at the time which was our school and knew that they had to provide for all of us so when we said at 16 well i was 16 my sister was 18 we're going to london but we needed a grant it was a PE teacher that sourced our grant when our cases were packed, it was like my parents were like, so it's happening. Yeah, our PE teacher took us to London, found the flat, got us into the uh, trading education. And both my parents were supportive. They, they didn't say no. That was the thing. They never stopped us from trying, never stopped encouraging us from being the best that we could be. It just that they weren't as hands on. And 
I suppose in a way that was a very helpful thing at that point, because had they been, I don't know if if our careers would have turned out this way, because there would have been some fear of sending your 16 year old to London to train, not really knowing the industry. Definitely. That's a very young age. Actually, you, you're from, are you from Leeds originally? From Leeds. Yeah. So you're from Leeds, it's literally the other side of the country and you traveled out to London at 16 years old. That's a big move. It's, so, yeah. um, yeah. Do you feel that, cause I feel like with industries with some industry like dance, for example, you could say it's a bit more of an unstructured career path where if you was to go down that maybe the professional services route, there's a tried and tested path. You know, you could go and study this and then go and do this and you got your nine to five and you could work there for X amount of years, but it's a bit more unstructured in the field of dance. And I feel that you're probably going to need a certain level of grit and determination in those kind of worlds. Uh, would you would you say that's fair a fair thing to say? I would absolutely agree with you. Um, grit is an interesting term that we use. Uh, um, in Leeds, that's we talk about having the grit to to, to survive. Um, London is not for everyone. Um, I did have a sister in London at the time. Granted, we didn't actually live together. That was interesting. She was in nursing. Uh, we went to London, the four of us. So we had to figure out a way of surviving mm-hmm. London. And I guess each individual had to figure that out for themselves, even though there might have been a collective of us. And I suppose moving through the, the, the choices that you have in terms of job careers, you know, you can do your West End and you've got your commercial line. But again, you still bounce in and out of that. Um, for a black female in those days, in the early 80s, 90s, trying to make sure that you were as good as you can be, that you were getting the same offers. There was all of those conscious, conscious, unconscious biases played around the opportunity. So you really are entering a space that was quite um, certain, a lot of uncertainty about it. And there was never really, like you said, the, the sort of trajectory to be able to go and just make it happen. I always describe my career as a bit of a lily pad in terms of jumping from one thing to the next and each of those things having some instability about it and knowing that actually you've still got to stay on that lily pad to make things work before you can take a leap right, left, back, forward, up, down. Kind of doesn't matter which direction you leap in, it's what you take with you and how you're landing your next opportunity. So yeah, I think the the structure thing doesn't necessarily say it's a dancer's career to just think that there's one direction, one line of travel. And also I discovered I could do other things as well. Great, other things like what? Well, dancing's only one aspect. You know, I, I developed uh, an appetite for choreography and started to make work. I was also working, I think what was really quite interesting is just knowing how much of a mentor I could be, how much learning there was on the bigger field. And actually just feeling that um, I wasn't just a dancer in a space, I was always something more than. And then to have the opportunity to actually build my own company, which I did, knowing how that operates, what the business side of it's like, to move into being an artistic director of the longest standing company outside of London for 11 years is a job in itself. And I think that narrative somehow, it sits with me in such a way that when the story needs to be told, because we were, we was a very successful, we are very successful uh, as a company. And I guess to some degree, the understanding behind the scenes is heavy. It's really big. The demands on what's described as an, a black company and then looking at how that sits within the bigger industry and the landscape and the people and the emotional context and the physical, it's just huge. So yeah, you realize actually you are bigger than the job and there's so much more that needs to be done. Um, 
and the voice, the power you carry, you have a responsibility. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've done, you've done a lot. Like you've done, accomplished some amazing stuff in your career. And something one of my aunties always says to me is, she quotes, oh, what, it's, uh, you see the glory, but you don't know the story. So oh, see... I like that. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Auntie Esther. <laughs> Listening. Well, it's like, it's so true because you can see people who are in whatever position and you can look and be like, wow. But you don't know what's gone on behind the scenes for them to get to wherever they've got to. The years of grafting, the years of probably a lot of rejection, challenge and all of this, tears, everything for them to get to where they got to. And then you see the smiles and everything at the end. But it's a hell of a lot that went on <laughs> behind the scenes. And you spoke about some of the stuff that you've worked on and that you're working on now, which I'd love to touch on in a moment. But before we get to all of the stuff you're doing now, some of the more recent events, before you joined the Phoenix, oh, what was it again? Phoenix Dance Theatre, that was it. Can you talk a bit about what your experience was like in the world of dance, particularly as a black woman? You're young, 16, moving into your early 20s, probably in London, far away from a lot of your family. What was that experience for you? And what kind of challenges were you facing at the time? Yeah, that's um, taking me back some some years. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you know, I loved my training. I absolutely loved the environment. It wasn't, it wasn't that it wasn't um, primarily, it was white and middle class, the environment that I was work, I went into. It was London itself at the time. You know, the, the number 73 bus was my journey and it would go from one end to the other. And that's what you did. You knuckle down, you focus and you make sure that the job you went to, to do is the job that you achieve. Um, the pushbacks and the challenges were always there. I think to some degree, the innocence of who I was at a 16, 17, 18 year old was very, very different. Um, and perhaps maybe wasn't as aware of it because I, I, I was quite blinkered. And I, I think about the jobs that I was successful, and I guess to some degree, I maybe give myself need to give myself credit for te- for the jobs I did achieve uh, arrive at because I don't think there were many jobs that I got rejected from, not many. So being able to be in those spaces and being the first BP dancer for Extemporary Dance Theatre, which is a company that doesn't exist anymore, but it was a paid job, very famous in London. I was had a job in Liverpool before I graduated school, so. There was talent coming through that I think was the driver. And at those times, it was okay to have one. And by that, I mean, it was okay to have one black person in the company. It was okay to have that. And very often it would be me, that there is only one of me. And moving through that, I think in 89, when we got invited back to to Leeds to perform, to be part of the company of Phoenix Dance Theatre, it was all male, all black. So they never had any females. And coming from Leeds, they invited the only successful females from hair holes to come back to the company who were in professional training to be able to be part of the company. So it, it, I guess the blessings of God there, just guiding, guiding me through, of course, knowing that there's bigger jobs to be done, but yeah, I joined the company and my career from there on never really left Phoenix, even though I bounced away from that. I worked with Northern Valley. I worked with other companies, work up in Newcastle Gateshead. It's just different jobs, but I was always drawn back to Phoenix. So I was there as a performer and then I left. I joined the school here as a lecturer and then I left and went back to Phoenix as rehearsal and tour director and left and ended up going back there as the as the artistic director. So 
something something about that connection that connectivity and the purpose of my relationship with that company is very significant past and present who knows what the future might hold but i think it's it's really clear and i think that helped me to cut my teeth on a lot of the discussion conversation and confidence building that i really needed you mentioned something very interesting that you said um, you spoke about the purpose your purpose with the company the phoenix dance theater so what would you say that is maybe upon reflection I would say that the purpose was to keep it true to its form, to provide a place for people that look like me, and to try and change the discourse of what I feel. There's so many people that feel they own that company because of its either emotional connection. Historically, it was the first company people saw. It had a very visceral feeling about it. And when you see those dancers on stage, the power of that race and culture together delivering, you, you have to hold that and, and cement that in some way. Otherwise, somebody starts to rewrite the narrative and it starts to look very different. So, we know, you know, to hold on to that. And I think as your auntie said, your auntie Esther, you see the glory. But behind the scenes, really fighting to keep its identity as it is, was quite a job. And that was coming from all directions. Um, you know, the dilution of what its history, well, you can't dilute its history because that's what it is. But the future of the organisation was always in question. And... There was some some real questions that needed answering and some realities that needed to be put on the table. So, yeah, I just think um, my purpose there was really to try and hold on to its USP. Can you talk, so just to set a bit of context, can you talk about, um, well, I'm going to ask a couple of questions in one, actually. So quickly, can you talk about how the period of time that eloped from you moving to London at 16 years old to you getting that call up to the Phoenix Dance Theatre? So I asked that because I just wanted to, I think it sets a bit of context and people can see how long these things take. It aren't, aren't often overnight things that happen and you've got to put in and you're studying and you've got to put in the work over time. But yeah, so talk about that period, how long that took. And then with the Phoenix Dance Theatre itself, just a quick explanation as to, I guess, what it is. And if you have any particularly proud performances that you put on while you were there. Oh, that's a nice question, but it's quite <laughs> hard to answer. Um, <laughs> So just taking us back from, from being in London and getting that call. In fact, what was quite interesting about the call, they, they weren't going to call me. Phoenix, as a company then, wasn't going to call me. And uh, my sister, who also dances and has a very successful career, she got the call and she phoned me and said, Sharon, have you got the call? And I just went, what call? And, <laughs> well, Phoenix are taking on women in the company. And I was like, yeah. Well, which women? Well, we're all from Leeds. I was like, yeah, so, and it was literally like, I, my heart sunk because I was already in a job and they didn't feel that it was okay to take me out of that job to have an experiment. But I was like, they better call me. Um, <laughs> who else is gonna be that fourth dancer? So I, I eventually, they, I did get the call and accepted. And we, in 89, we joined for six months as the females of the company. And it was so successful, we never left. And we set the pathway, of course, for the opportunity to do other things. But I did leave eventually um, from the company as a performer. I think my body was battered. We'd, we'd done everything. We traveled the world. It was just the most incredible moment in my career. Um, and the successes of that, just where it was able to open up opportunity. And it was time for me to step away from that for a while, which I did. And then I came here where I am now. 
having this podcast from the Northern School of Contemporary Dance. I came to the school as a lecturer, um, having completed my degree here as well, decided that actually it was here or Jamaica, which I can't, I can't, couldn't believe I had the opportunity to be a lecturer in Jamaica. And, you know, Professor Rex Nettleford had invited me to be a lecturer there. And it was my father that said to me, um, I don't think you're ready for Jamaica. <laughs> oh, what do you mean, Dad? He's like, no, no, no. You know, you you kind of need to do. You need to be leave that for a little while. But at the same time, I got offered the job here at the school, which I took on, and I've never looked back since, really. Um, which was magical. And then again, back at back to Phoenix Dance Theatre, who change of direction, change of leadership meant that I could work with a new artistic director. I could be the wing woman. Um, I was flying, absolutely flying, but there came a point where the amount of work that I was doing with the organization and I was not getting the credit for that. That was not, it was not my name. I was not the artistic director, but I was, he presented me with um, a couple of letters, which was about a leadership course, a bespoke one at that. And I thought, great, I could try this. It was never the right time. It was never the right time. Damn, how am I going to get through, break the ceiling? And eventually the right time came. And I went off to, back to London to do the CLAW leadership, which was a bespoke leadership course for directors. But I'd been coming from, I'm coming from a practitioner's background and therefore felt very inferior to the people in the room. Absolutely out of my depth. Um, but I did it anyway. It was one of those where I have to figure out whether or not this is for me, this direction of travel. I would say it was one of the most challenging periods of my time to be able to take on this leadership, bespoke leadership course, to know that I could run a company, that I could understand finance, I could be understanding how I communicate with press and PR and marketing and government and councils and and actually just build a vision that says you could do this, of which I did. And then I got the job at Phoenix again, because I interviewed for that twice um, and they didn't give it to me the first time. I was like, oh, okay, that's not good. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was timely, everything for a reason. And uh, I stepped in there and spent 11 years. Where did the, the leadership program, is it the Claude leadership program, was it? Claude, yes. Claude, so where did that fit in uh, when, with you going and starting your own business as well? Was that before? No, was... no, that was way after. So when I was given the job, I'm not putting years on this because then it just makes it sound like an eternity. But whilst I was here at the school, I was running my own company, ABC Dance, which was Arts Beyond Contemporary Dance. And that was taking on opportunities to just expand what I thought culture and creativity could offer. Um, still within dance, that was my vehicle, but also just looking at how music integrated and how we had other conversations around building young people's uh, opportunities and giving opportunities for other people. So it was, and that was also to take in the possibilities of looking at visual arts and you know any other digital art, which actually at the time wasn't such a big thing. But yeah, I am. Um, the claw came in in 2006. So I had, where was I? I was at school. I had gone back to Phoenix for a while as the rehearsal and tour director. And then in 2006, I applied for the claw and basically just said to them, if you don't do this for me, I really don't know how I'm going to break the ceiling. And they did. They, you know, they took me on. I had to do it part time because what happened was the job came up for Phoenix again, second time round. And I got it in 2009. That was wonderful. But then I also felt like I wanted to do a master's because I was in rooms where I felt that people were looking, my own paranoia maybe, 
but just questioning my capabilities. So I went off and did a master's. Um, that was at the same time that I got the job at Phoenix. So I was trying to master all of this in one. It's all come out in the wash that it was absolutely fantastic. And I reflect back on that time and the pressure, but knowing that actually I am capable and I think if I can do it, it's it's there as an example for other people to be able to achieve that. So yeah, I, I delivered that and continue to just keep growing. With you, with your, your the history that you've had with the, the Phoenix company and having applied for that role and then being rejected the first time and then getting it the second time round, how do you deal with that kind of disappointment? I guess that one might be a bit because you have the history with them and then not to not get it the first time, it might sting more than it would any other, you know, a regular role you've applied for. How do you deal with disappointments like that? And just in general, other disappointments that you've gone through in your professional career? That was that was a real blow because I think whilst my learning with the artistic director who employed me was going incredibly well, a lot of the time and he would say, Oh, Sharon runs the company, go and ask her. Sharon runs the company. And I spent a lot of time learning, which I, I thought this was my opportunity to be to be schooled. And to think that actually that statement would have carried me further than it did, um, because I actually was doing a lot of the work, understanding all the dynamics, the international touring, you know, commissioning, financial, the uh, the relationship to the company. So I felt that I was I was well qualified for the role, but it didn't come my way at the time. It was it was hurtful because then I started to question my my value and clearly my capabilities, which is why I needed to seek out another option just to consolidate whether that was the right thing for me or whether I actually was just bigging myself up around my own capabilities, but not having anything to show for it. So the claw came at the right time and I'm in a, I have to look back and, and thank God for that because it really did put my feet on the ground um, without compromise. So, you know, everything that came into my space at the time was was real. It wasn't as a result of me having done the job before. This was all new. Um, and I think I had to build my confidence to say that, actually, if I put myself in the space, what value do you bring with with that so that you can absolutely come out the other side? Um, it was hurtful. I'm not going to lie. I think about it now and I just think, yeah. That should never have happened the way that it did. And I could have had a different outcome should I had I chosen to pursue uh, the decisions that were made, but I accepted it. And I think generally it's enabled me to question anything that doesn't quite happen the way that I think it should. I don't find it such a problem. I might sit on it for a day or something happened. Literally, I was in the building, in the Phoenix building the other day, and I I saw something that was just taking shape, which wasn't very pleasant. And I thought, actually, do I do, do I deal with it or do I just let it pass? It's not worth it. It really isn't worth it. It's disappointing that that's how the person was behaving. But I thought, you know what? It actually isn't my problem. It really isn't my problem. And so I'll leave them with that, let them get on with it. And that's the kind of voices you have to have that sit with you on a day-to-day -day basis when people are asking questions and when things, situations happen. But when you do feel that you have to step in, be sure that you're bringing your whole self to that that situation. Because, it, yeah, when you kind of come out the other side, you want to know that you've done everything you can to to correct, to support and to deliver whatever it is that you're dealing with. Yeah. And you mentioned a little bit earlier on that when you first went on this core leadership 
program or course that it was quite difficult for you that you uh, to give it to label it I don't necessarily like this word too much but it's just what comes to my head but to label it, it probably feels a bit of imposter syndrome at the time because you had a lot of people around you that maybe have experience in that area and then you didn't have necessarily that kind of experience in that area or whatnot but you, you know you've gone through it it was a good experience you've come out the other end and now you're a leader in a few different rights of um, the school or in just in communities etc but you're a leader in a few different rights now uh, can you how do you approach the responsibility of being a leader and a role model in your community and in the world of dance I love being here I really really love it and I think the beauty of it is that I can have conversations that I perhaps maybe would never have been able to have had before I can open doors that have been very, very closed. I can be at the table and have that voice and know that I can have someone right by my side that doesn't have to say anything, but can learn. I feel that I've been empowered by the community to be part of the community, that they can still see me as one of them and know that actually there isn't the hierarchy, there is just the camaraderie that enables a, a consolidated view or vision and action to take place. I. I do. I love when people say, ah, so there's a there's a black woman there. Oh, that's wonderful. Because it says that I don't have to be the only one. Um, and the fact that I can be in my community, I can walk up and down the street here and people will say hello to me. People will ask what's happening with the, the developments of the school and the building. It's, it's a school that's been built out of a community. So it feels as though it's time and it has been time to give back to the community in whatever way that looks. But I can open doors, I really can. And even if that literally is just saying, I'll make that email connection for you. And once I've done that, you go and you go and tell them how amazing you are, because you are. Um, and I do that quite often because it takes a matter of minutes to give someone else just that one step that says, we're gonna build our confidence together because I think you're worth it. And as soon as you start moving, you'll know you're worth it. So it's it's very satisfying, incredibly satisfying. I wish we had more money, I could do more things. But actually, as I've just expressed to you, it's not all about the money. Sometimes a conversation is so valuable that it can really, really change someone's lives. And yeah, I, I enjoy that. So it sounds like that's what brings you joy then, just sort of helping and uplifting other people. It does. And I think I have a little bit of me that says, you know, at this stage in my career, what have I got to lose? You know, if someone <clears throat> they choose not to employ me again for, for whatever, and then I think I've done I've done a lot to kind of help build the community and just to show that there isn't one way to do things. There isn't one way that we can talk about our ambitions or our vision. But I think, you know, that thing of not feeling as though you have anything to lose, you know, I've built a reputation if somebody chooses to damage that, that's somewhere else. That's kind of not in my in my realm. I can't deal with that. I can't I don't have to do anything with that. But I do feel that right about now, if I feel that there is injustice or inequality or any kind of discrimination, anything that really does not say that we are we have equality in the way that we operate, then I have the, I have the position. I have the position to be able to say that. But I also have the, I'm in the position to say, actually, have you not seen that? Have you not seen that? And you're all here. You know, maybe nothing has actually physically happened, but are you not sensing the way this conversation is going? Are you not sensing the way that people have been clustered and treated? You can't be doing this now. We've got to open this up. So I don't fear those spaces, whereas I think a few years ago, I probably would have been a bit more cautious. But I also, you know, George Floyd in 
2020 just told us something different and showed us something different. And we don't really have time to waste. Yeah, no, that, that George Floyd was disgusting. I think that was a massive global shift in the whole world. Like in the global consciousness, everything changed from then. And uh, issues that have been under the carpet for a hell of a long time are now being discussed. Uh, we can argue that maybe not enough has been done, but it was, it was a massive shift in the world. I think it changed a lot of people's worlds and lives, for sure. That situation. Have you, with you speaking about your, you know, your, your helping and challenging like injustices and inequalities and that those are things you don't like. Have you ever been a victim of some kind of a injustice uh, or and how an inequality has negatively impacted you in your career or in your personal life in some way? It happens in so many different guises. And I think what we, what I've learned to, to come to realize is that you can carry a lot of that with you. Um, or you can try and, and let it go because it's, it's heavy. If anyone's experienced it, it is really heavy. I think, you know, various ways, and there's just the very subtle things. Um, you, someone wanted, once brought a disciplinary, um, and I don't even work for the organisation, but they wanted to complain and bring a disciplinary. I was like, how does that work? You didn't like something I said, but you want, to, and I just thought, whoa. And in the end, I was like, wait a minute, is that, my, is that me or is that them? I only met them once. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, they clearly had something that was building from from history. Because you can't just that moment doesn't just happen in that in that one instance. So there must have been something. And there's a few times where I've been on panels where I think, you know, they've come for me. Um, and in the in broad daylight in front of other people have really wanted to have a showdown. And within that situation, you're thinking, well, somebody would stand up and be my backative, but actually, no, you've just been left to deal with it on your own. And even if it's it's been recorded and you look at the evidence, they still don't want to deal with it. So there are things that, yeah, along the way throughout, and you just think, well, somebody asked me the other day if I was, if I was taking coats, I was going to present at the graduation. So, you know, little things like that. And you think, how do you, you're instantly kind of going, how do I deal with this? What do I do? It's just so momentarily that you go, okay, I'm just going to be quiet. They'll see what I'm here to do. They will absolutely see what I'm here to do because I'm coming here to, to address your students, all of them, and their parents, and your staff. So for you to have assumed that I'm the code keeper was, you know, your problem. Um, and here I am as a, as, a, as a CEO, a doctor, an MBE, a DL, CEO. There you go. That's what I do. That's what I'm coming here to do. So sometimes you don't have to fight your battle directly because the circumstance or the or the situation will enable you to just demonstrate by your actions what, what's needed to be done. But yeah, it happens and you digest it and you sometimes want to go back and go, right, this is what I'm going to do. But uh, yeah, I'm a great believer in karma. Those kind of perceptions need to be dead. That's just, that's mad like you're going to present and then they just assumed i mean what is it different about you compared to everybody else that now they think oh sharon's here she's coming to take the coats or whatever like, that's mad i think mean, those things need to be challenged and that's one major reason why i started this podcast in the first place because like, there's a lot of people out here doing a lot of good stuff and there's too many negative perceptions you know um i'm assuming you know, in that case it must be because you're black someone's came in and they thought oh she's taking the coats they, they it wouldn't even fathom in their mind that you you're you're 
could be a guest, he could be whatever you're presenting. There's so many different roles you could have played in that particular situation. But why is it that they've assumed you're there to handle coats? No disrespect to obviously anyone that's handling coats, whatever. But why is it they've assumed that's your role in that in that room that you're in there? That's crazy. And those things definitely need to be challenged and um and changed for sure. You know, when I was looking at your, because I was looking at um to shift to shift a bit actually, I was looking at one a piece or performance i don't even know what the correct terminology is but something that you i think you directed it as artistic director the let me read it it was the wind rush moment of the people and black waters it sounds very very interesting <laughs> can you talk about what that was and the message that you wanted to convey with that piece of performance yeah yeah there were two pieces there so wind rush which is movement of the people we delivered that in 2018, which was the anniversary year, um, 70 years of Windrush. And Black Waters was the piece I decided I did after that in uh, high joint collaboration with uh, two Indian choreographers, uh, Shambik and Mittal of Rude Mosaic. But yeah, both separate works, but Windrush was a whirlwind of a year delivering that work. It, it was the moment I decided that we had to hold on to what it, what our narrative was. It was a moment for me to really kind of do a lot of research. My, my parents from the Caribbean and, you know, there are people here in Leeds that are still of that generation. Um, and to be able to create that piece of work, it was the moment when we had all the hostile treatment from the government coming through. It took me to parliament three times. Um, it just did so much. And I think it divided Phoenix at the time because this whole narrative around, you know, coming across, building the country, the work, they didn't come here on a freebie, it was an invitation. And then seeing the hostile environment, which I depicted in a, in a way that if you see the images or even the work itself, it's quite sharp. I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't aggressive, it was just sharp. It was, you know, the no dogs, no, no Irish and no blacks was very clearly displayed on the stage. Um, and as my mother described it, women that had no faces, they just looked and treated them with such disdain that they couldn't even describe what they looked like. They were just these bodies of, of horribleness. Um, and I turned that into a production, which is will be with us for a long, long time, um, which is a shame and a positive at the same time. But it's, um, and also just the kind of the conclusion, there was a celebration within all of that because my family came, they integrated. I have such a, a vast mix within my family now. And, you know, the last part of Windrush was showing the celebration of the music, was the, the coming together of, of cultures and race. And yeah, it won us awards, which was fantastic. And I decided I was going to do it again. And then we did with Black Waters. Um, unfortunately, COVID stopped that production very early on in its uh, delivery. We produced it, we performed it, premiered at the West Yorkshire Playhouse at the time it was, um, and then it didn't really get an outing. So it's sitting there waiting if anybody wants to recommission that. I'm, I'm all ears. But it was the, the story of the Zong, um, the Zong River and the Kalapani prison, of which Black Waters was just, it was a, a name that summarised the death that went into that water, the, the, how they put bodies into that water. And then the British tried to claim money for it, of the, the bodies that went in, but they were never seen as bodies, they were seen as cargo, so they got nothing. They absolutely got nothing. And the prisons that kind of in, in the, from India that where they 
basically incarcerated people and the indigenous people were just held as prisoners. If you went into that water, you never came out. And both of those narratives with Jamaica and India resonate with the fact that actually people lost their lives because of other people's doings. Wow, sound like two very powerful pieces for sure. I loved making them both. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely agree. I think that the, the arts, the creative sector is a fantastic way to to share some of these kind of messages, you know, because people could take them in, in a medium that they probably enjoy because a lot of people might not want to read the book or maybe even watch a video, but it's another medium, another form to push out a lot of these messages. So um, that sounds amazing. That sounds very good. And hats off to yourself and the team for putting um, both of those on. Thank and you. I really do hope that that second, second piece can get recommissioned at some stage so if somebody's listening and you've got a big purse then please <laughs> get in contact with them have you in your career mm-hmm. have you ever gone through any kind of a situation where you felt like everything is going wrong and you was you just felt like you know what I'm gonna quit I'm gonna give up and if you have how have you overcome that kind of a situation I don't think I can say that I'm a quitter I really I I think I the reality of having to do things differently is, is probably how I would summarize that. Um, yeah, there are times when I just go, God, I, I can't cope with this. I can't do this. In fact, even stepping into this new role, because I, it's, it's, got a, it's got so many facets to it that part of it is I'm schooled in. I'm very schooled in. And part of it, I have no idea. And I'm learning the job really through the team that we have here. And I've looked at some papers sometimes and gone, I, I haven't got a clue. I really have not got a clue. And if this is where I'm going to lose my job, it's over this because I can't figure this out. But I think what's interesting about it is that I just sometimes think, actually, I don't always have the answers. I can't be the person that always has the answer um, in order to make things work. So be humble enough to go and ask the questions, which is the way that I figure out if I can't do this, then where do I get the help from? And who can help me without feeling as though it's you know it's a judgmental thing it's just a case of i don't know i can't cope with it i can't do it and sometimes things do get so overwhelming and i wouldn't say necessarily here at the moment but previously there's been times when it just feels as though this is just so much and i just turn and say actually sometimes very often to my family um if i'm saying that there's a lot going on it's the fact just segment it, segment each of the sections and see which one is the ones that's still standing when you go, actually, you're, that's not important. It needs dealing with, but not for now. Which is the one that is absolutely going to fall down now that you feel that you have to focus in on? And when you even when even when you do that, sometimes you go, oh, okay, all right, yeah, I can do that, I can do that. So, yeah, that's a... And I think it will happen depending on how you're starting new ideas, new projects, new relationships. You know, sometimes they don't always seem to land in the space where you feel that it's a collegiate approach to something and you have to understand how to work with that individual, not necessarily like them, but work with them for sure, because the outcome is bigger than you. And when you see that, you'll understand that just because we've always done something this way doesn't mean we're going to continue doing it like that, because the outcome is not about the people that are trying to make this happen. It's about the outcome for the people that are going to receive it. If we always put the perspective in the right space and try and share the lens in the right direction, we can come out with something and we can still be friends, but not like each other. (laughs) That's okay, And that's that's absolutely fine. But we we produced a result that everybody can be happy with. I say I love that the outcome is bigger than yourself. And I love that. It's like work, working towards something that's bigger than yourself. Have a purpose and something that you really believe in and work towards that. 
what sort of an impact do you want to make in the world of dance and in the community and beyond? I hope I continue to, to make an impact, first of all. Um, and it is resonating in a way that is, is as I say, impactful. And I don't often talk about legacy, but I do talk about the impact of the work that I, I set out to achieve or even that I, I stumble on, which happens quite often, I have to be honest. Can we have a quick conversation about X? And you go, yeah, okay, what's... And suddenly you find yourself that you've opened up this world. It's like, right, okay, now that I'm in it, I can't step away from that. But I do think that to remain confident and how I've continued to build confidence, because as you know, the world is changing so rapidly. The world has made us, a lot of the people I work with feel more vulnerable about their futures, about their careers. And, you know, what the what those opportunities can bring if we all continue driving things together for the greater good. So it's quite a hard one. Um, COVID has shifted the mentality and the confidence of a lot of people. And some people are very complacent with just staying very much in the background, which I can understand and appreciate. But at the same time, if somebody doesn't start to drive, then we are only going to be left with kind of the backward tracking of activity and events. So continue to be visionary. visionary. I think that really helps to try and really take in the landscape beyond my own square mile and understand how much more there is to see and to, to offer. And hopefully that I remain approachable. People see that as a possibility. Um, and again, like if I don't have all the answers, that's something I can share will help them to kind of take the next step forward. And yeah, and to continue enjoying the moment I stop enjoying, I think I will have to consider what else I do. But if the love is still there and I really enjoy it, then I'm going to continue. That's perfect. And finally, as we prepare to wrap up, what advice would you give to someone who's trying to drive a change in their life and in their communities? I very simple in a way that it's and I say it very simply, but I hope it's it's taken that way that if the door is slightly ajar, then just push it a little further. Um, you are no worse off for not trying to open to, to have that door open for you. I would say ask the question again, because the answer might be exactly what you need. And if it isn't, then you've lost nothing. And sometimes it's that the perception of what something is isn't always the thing that it is. If you can understand how you absorb that for yourself, then just by asking that question could unlock so many possibilities. And, you know, there's a way of asking questions that people go, you know, that's probably not quite what you were asking, but maybe it's this. And if it is this, then I can help with that. But if it isn't, you might need to go somewhere else for that. But yeah, just really feel as though make yourself amenable in that way. And, uh, and let's all keep working together because we've got a lot of work to do. That's it. Thank you so much. That's that. Podcast all done. <laughs> That's it. Thank you so much, Sharon. Really, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Actually, there's so much, so much gems and good bits of advice and good stories and all of that stuff drops, man. So thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Once again, really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you. Right, it's been, been an honor having you on. If anybody wants to keep up to date with yourself or some of the work that um, you and the school uh, that, you're, that you're working on how can they best do so and also have you got if you've got any closing remarks or any final words um, you can share them now as well thank you um, please connect with us as a school we are a charity as well if that's something that people are cons considering whether they can help to support the school because we have a, a number of young people that need the help and guidance and opportunities 
we don't just teach dance here. We do all a lot of other things. We have a theatre that we run as well. So shows and possibilities of making shows with people, producing shows, showing shows. Um, and, you know, our community needs you. Our community needs the support in more ways than one. So, you know, you can get hold of us on the, the Northern School of Contemporary Dance website. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm definitely there and open and willing to talk. And uh, please feel free to step into my space and see what happens. If we don't connect today, then there is always tomorrow. God sparing, there is a future for us both. So let's move forward in that direction with that possibility. Great. That's amazing. So thank you for coming to the podcast once again, Shan. Really appreciate it. If you are listening and if you haven't subscribed to us already, please do. It really, really, really does help in us amplifying the voices of these people that we get on um, and attracting more guests onto the podcast. So please do subscribe, like and share this as far and wide as you can. And I really would appreciate that. So thank you very much for coming to the podcast once again, Sharon. This is 1000 Voices. And for now, people, we're out.